0: Hi, and welcome to the second part of four special edition EVJ podcasts. These are based on the Review of the Year session, originally given at this year's Beaver Congress, and they cover the recent literature of four different categories. The moderator of the session was Beaver's president, Jonathan Pycock, and in this podcast, Thomas Divers will review the past year's literature based on medicine. Thomas is currently Professor of Medicine at Cornell University. Good morning, everyone. And so, for the first paper I want to talk about is uh, a paper published recently on in forces, septic pleurodemonia. And I selected this paper for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, it was a study that had a large number of horses entered into study 97. Number two, there have been uh, two or three other papers published within the last two years that are more... Uh, briefly mentioned that may affect how we uh, treat horses with floridammonia. But getting back to this initial paper, which was uh, the horses came from either Purdue University or uh, Haggard Medical Institute in Lexington, Kentucky, and their objectives were to identify predictive factors predictive of survival in horses with septic pneumonia Because we all know that it's a quite exp- can be a quite expensive disease to treat. So, knowing uh, predictive factors for survival would be important to us and the client. And uh, this was a retrospective study. And I want to point out a couple highlights that were presented from the paper in the results. And not, not surprising, 31% of the horses had history of recent travel. We've known for decades that uh, transportation uh, appears to be a risk factor for the disease. Although there is some unproven information out there now that the instances of disease may have decreased simply because people are not tying the heads up so tight in the bands and decreases the chance of aspiration pneumonia. Uh, the median age of these horses, 97 horses, was 2.5 years, which goes along with mostly race horses. Uh, and the mean duration of clinical signs prior to presentation was six days. And the clinical signs on admission, you can read here, they included lethargy, tachypnea, tachycardia. Uh, fever was only in 43% of the horses, but that was at hospital admission. So many of these horses had received Nostra anti-inflammatory treatment prior to going to the hospital, or referral hospital. I think uh, they had information there on fever as a complaint, and it was upwards of 90% or so in the horses. Uh, weight loss was not determined at the hospital admission because that would be somewhat hard to do. But the referred veterinarians had reported that weight loss had occurred on uh, treatments prior to admission. And we know that horses can lose muscle mass and lose weight quite quickly with this disease. Uh, the ventral edema was found in 14% of the horses. That's probably related to the amount of in the fluid With lymphatic and venous drainage uh, from the uh, uh, abdomen and uh, ventral chest. Uh, Eight horses were diagnosed with laminitis, either on presentation one or during hospitalization seven. Uh, Later on, they talk about the number that received cryotherapy. As far as laboratory findings, Dr. Sharma would be very interested in these, I'm sure. It was, uh, many of them had a increased fibrinogen, a significant, a large number did. Banned neutrophils, hypoalbuminemia, and hyponatremia occurred in 60% or more of the cases. I suspect the hyponatremia was a result of uh, the ventral edema in some patients, whether it was visible or not visible, uh, which increased the extracellular fluid space, which uh, diluted out the sodium. Now, culture results, uh, and this is where it gets pretty interesting because uh, uh, I've got the information here about the number of tracheal aspirates that were formed. That's TA, uh, plural fluid samples that were submitted 68, uh, were submitted for culture. And uh, 98% of the tracheal aspirates were positive for bacterial growth. And 84 of uh, uh, the pleural fluid, fluid samples were positive for bacterial growth, It surprised me because my uh, experience has been it's usually not that high for pleural fluid. And the most common organisms found on the tracheal aspirates uh, was uh, strep uh, zooepidemicus in 84% of the cases, actinobacillus in 33, E. coli in 28, staph aureus, staph species in 15%. Uh, within the pleural fluid, it was very similar. 67% strep uh, pseudepidemicus, uh, 16% actin and 11% E. coli, 7% staff. And th- there's another paper that I want to refer to at this time, too, which came from California. Uh, it was uh, horses that had been presented to the diagnostic laboratory for necropsy at the, uh, California, in Southern California. And this was the 2017 paper in Veterinary Diagnostic Lab for Investigations. They had cultured all the horses, the lung tissue at post-mortem, and you can see here what they found in 84 horses. They found very similar things, which was found in the Purdue uh, Lexington study. And I think that tells us that when we gear a treatment towards pluridemonian horses, we have to consider these three main organisms, that Strep uh, coliforms, mostly E. coli, and actinobacillus species as far as selecting our antimicrobial therapy. So it's nice to see that two large studies, one anti-mortem tested, one postmortem mortem tested, found very similar culture results, which gives us a strong piece of information uh, in our selection of antimicrobials. Now, the surprising thing which I have involved here in the Purdue Lexington study of the live horses the fluorosomia, the presence of anaerobes was not associated with survival. And it doesn't mean we were right, but we had published two papers several years ago, Corinne Sweeney and Ray Sweeney and myself, indicating that the presence of anaerobes and fetid smells of the, from the back breath did decrease survival in horses with fluid run. Well, there's two, couple of options for that. Number one, one of the limitations of this paper that I present today is that they did not do anaerobic cultures. And the horses at Haggard Medical Institute, because they don't do anaerobic cultures there. Their anaerobic cultures only came from the group of horses that were at Purdue University.
1: The other reason is
0: that one of the studies could be wrong, just not enough power in our old study or their study, since they had a limited number of anaerobic cultures. The other option is, probably more reasonable, is that back when we did our original studies in the 1980s at the University of Pennsylvania, we are not using metronidazole as frequently then. Whereas here, as you'll see in a few moments, metronidazole is almost a standard treatment for horses with fluid ammonia. So that might explain, if it's true, why anaerobes did not have an effect on survival in this study, but did in our previous studies. So here's the treatment that was uh, administered to the horses, uh, and 94 of the 97 horses were treated. And the old standby penicillagentomycin has been used for at least four or five decades now as a standard treatment for horses with pleuro-pneumonia, uh, at, at, uh, particularly at referral uh, sites. Metronidazole is used in 68% of enterocloxacin 11 Most of these horses do receive consterate inflammatories Meprozole, a large percentage use that. And 19%. Uh, Heparin 15%, and a few of the horses got different oxygen. 24% of the horses received uh, a, a digital hypothermia, cryotherapy. And we've often had a discussion how commonly do horses with fluid founder? Well, this would indicate that uh, certainly they do founder, and we all know that. Uh, the number that foundered in the group here, we I've got that somewhere, there was a, a small number, I think it was eight uh, previous lives, seven or eight out of 97 horses. Well, I think that's uh, certainly any time horse founders, is, it's one too many. But I think we would agree that the, the likelihood of foundering with pneumonia is, is probably not as high as it is with our colitis cases and our retritis cases. But it still exists. And it can certainly affect treatment expense and even outcome. Now, they also uh, uh, looked at the amount of fluid. Is the amount of fluid in the chest important for predicting survival? They found that that was not true. And I think that personally, I would certainly agree with that. Now, there is another article that was recently published in 2015. And they found that when the fluid is trapped in pockets, it does affect. So the amount of fluid by itself probably doesn't affect outcome. You can have 20, 30 liters and the horse still do well. But when the fluid becomes trapped into pockets, as presented in this other paper by Thomason, then that does have an effect on outcome because it's difficult to drain fluid, and particularly if it's separate fluid, which in many cases it is, if there's uh, adhesions and pockets of fluid. Now, I have to give Dr. Ducharme credit for this. He, he doesn't ever give medicine credit, but I occasionally once every year give him credit for surgery. And so this is that time. So they found that horses with thoracotomy, the plurigranium horses with thoracotomy had, thoracotomy, had a positive association with surviving. Now, the number of horses was small, 11. Chances are those horses that had thoracotomy, Probably the owners were willing to go with more expense. So that may have been uh, explained some of the fact that was improved in survival. Although you can medically explain it too. And that is that once you get these entrapments of pockets of fluid and its septic acidate, I will agree that surgery is a better treatment for that than medicine is, because it is very difficult to sterilize those areas trap fluid with septic x-ray drainage is the most important thing. And so they, they found that the surgery, at least regarding uh, discharge from hospital, that horse having a thoracotomy turned out to be a positive association with survival. And you can see here are some of the examples of, I mean once they have these trapped areas of abscessation in the pleural cavity, you're not going to treat those medically successfully. And these fluid pockets were even harder to treat. So the outcome, uh, 67% of horses survived from discharge. Having a thoracotomy was a positive predictor of survival, and the reasons maybe we talked about. And follow-up data was available in 53 of the horses. Four were euthanized due to unresolved pneumonia within two months of discharge. 35 horses, or 66%, uh, the horses that were discharged returned to previous work, and uh, the 35 horses that returned to work, 23 returned to racing, and that has been shown previously by my good friend, who unfortunately passed away, Doug Byers. He had a large study several years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, with Krista Seltzer indicated that horses recover and leave the hospital from fluoro pneumonia. A large number of those horses go back to racing. In an older study, they indicated that their racing level was uh, as expected based on the breeding of the horses. Now, an interesting thing, which I put in kind of for Pam here, is that is that when they looked at all the laboratory variables for risk factors for survival, the only thing that came up significant was serum practice. And it's amazing how many studies, there's a couple of neonatal pole studies, and these horses aren't dying of renal failure; they indicate that it's just when horses who are presented to you for a multitude of serious medical problems and their serum creatinine is, is quite high. I think that just indicates the severity of the general illness in the patient, and that along with lactate and things like that are really probably good markers for survival. They didn't find lactate to be statistically significant here; they didn't measure that. So I put that in just to indicate that when horses are, are ill and have elevated ferratinates, uh, in many studies that's an indicator, a risk factor for uh, non surviving Now following along with that study, uh, is there a way that we don't have to get the surgeons involved? That would be nice. <laughs> and so for the horses with the entrapment of pleural fluid, as we've talked about, not the big abscesses now, but the ones that have entrapped fluid within a thoracic cavity. Is there something that we can do to make that fluid more easily, that we can drain it more easily? And an article published uh, back in 2009 in the uh, uh, VET record indicated that putting TPA in the chest cavity, this was a study from Davis, a brief report, by putting uh, tissue plasminogen activator into the chest cavity, you can break down the fiber and adhesions fix it in a liter saline, you put it in, you leave it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and you drain it, and then theoretically the fibrous bands go away, they're broken down by the TPA, and then you can put a trocar in, and you successfully drain the septic exudate. Well, that was just, uh, I think, a single maybe case report back in 2009, so Dr. Tomlinson looked at uh, 25 cases that had been treated with uh, TPA and found that, uh, didn't have any control groups, but found that it appeared to be successful in breaking down the fibrinous adhesions to allow a more efficient drainage of the septic uh, chest fluid. And that might increase the need for surgery and might increase survival, because that's always a problem, draining these horses, particularly when you have chronic drainage, because they always get the uh, fibrinous adhesions. Now it is fairly expensive, uh, and to put 12 milligrams of TPA in, you're looking at uh, four dollars to $600 to do that uh, one time. So it is expensive, but of course, surgery is expensive too. And uh, the last thing I want to mention about uh, pleuropneumonia, which goes back to the Southern California report on the horses at post-mortem. And we've always known that the right... Caudal middle caudal lung was most severely affected because of the aspiration pneumonia that occurs, and that's the first airway that kind of drops off ventrally. Is that one to the uh, right middle caudal area of the lung? Well, they found that to be true in their post mortem study, and uh, right lung <coughs> was the area that had the most severe disease. Uh, and it was that same area that's been previously reported. So, this was just another finding which. Uh, supported what we have previously thought. Okay, so moving on to a more of a research article. But I hope you'll see the potential uh, implications uh, of this. And I picked this article because the authors have done a lot of preliminary work to get to this point, And uh, I think it offers some hope for a treatment of serious disease that we see in horses. That is equine herpes type 1 induced uh, abortions or more likely in this case uh, the uh, uh, equine uh, herpes type 1 bioncephal myelopathy that occurs. And the, it's known that regardless of whether it's abortion uh, occasionally brinkable uh, disease of the lung or an EHB1 neurologic disease affecting the spinal cord that vasculitis, edema, and unfortunately infarction are are part of the disease process in all those different organs. The lung, the reproductive tract, the uterus, and also within the central nervous system. And within a central nervous system, when infarction occurs, there's no going back. Those horses may survive, but they'll never be useful horses again. If they're treated successfully in the edema stage, then many of those horses seem to go back to perfectly normal function. So the uh, vasculitis and the infarction is very important to this disease, and if there's a way that we can prevent infarction from occurring, it will hopefully improve the survival rate of horses who develop herpes, uh, stuff like. And the authors, as I mentioned, have done some previous work, published a couple of earlier papers, to show that EHV-1 by itself activates platelets. And the virus is actually carried to some degree by the platelets through the body. And uh, the platelets, uh, EHV-1 activates the platelets through uh, tissue factor-initiated trauma generation. So the first thing, and the the simplest thing that the authors uh, research was the ability for antiplatelet drugs to inhibit uh, this uh, thrombosis. And so in, in, in vivo and in vitro uh, study, which meant they gave the drug to the horses, took the horses' own blood after peak blood levels uh, were thought to be present, then in vitro they would add EHB1 to the platelet-rich plasma and look at markers for uh, uptake of platelet activation. And they found that the antiplatelet drugs did not work in that scenario. So, therefore, the next step was if we cannot directly activate, uh, if we cannot directly impede the platelet activation, is it possible we can uh, inhibit from the generation? Uh, and then that in itself may decrease platelet activation. So, that was their hypothesis in the more recent study. The more recent study is simply an in vitro study, had no in vivo component to it. So they took uh, platelet-rich plasma, uh, and they actually added uh, the different drugs to that platelet-rich plasma, and looked at the ability of these drugs to inhibit uh, platelet activation. This was done by flow cytometry, detection of the alpha, alpha granule release. Uh, associated with uh, activity of uh, P-selectrin expression uh, on the platelet itself. And so what they used in this study was they used uh, regular heparin, which is unfractionated heparin, and low molecular weight heparin. And this is a nose-trite titration curve Oops, sorry, here. And this is unfractionated heparin here in different concentrations within the platelet-rich plasma. Uh, starting at 0.01, going up to 1 unit per ml. And this is with uh, thrombin being added to the fluid, platelet-rich plasma. And you can see here that the unfractionated plasma actually is, uh, I mean, the unfractionated heparin is quite effective in inhibiting the platelet activation, the uh, p-selectin-positive platelets. Now here are two separate strains of ehv one, and although it says AB four, that was actually a neuropathic strain, and this was uh, more of a vortogenic, so-called a strain. But regardless, the unfractionated heparin was quite effective in inhibiting platelet activation in uh, the platelet-rich plasma with the addition of either thrombin, a vortogenic strain HBV uh, one, and a neurotrophic strain. Now low molecular weight heparin, they have a control group here, BBS, which you see there's no effect. Uh, Same thing was very similar results, but actually the unfractionated heparin, as you can see, appears to work better than a low molecular weight heparin, although both of them were effective in uh, in preventing the activation of the platelets. So in summary, uh, EHV-1 induced platelet activation, at the level of the virus which was added, which was fairly low, uh, one platform in units per cell. It was inhibited by unfractionated heparin doses. And they also looked, by the way, at uh, factor 10 uh, activity or anti factor 10 activity, because there, if you had too much of that, you could predispose to uh, bleeding in the patient. And they found that the unfractionated heparin, that you could inhibit the platelet activation after EHV1 was added. Without affecting the platelet, with, without affecting the anti-factor uh, TNA activity, and the calculated dose. If you figure that horses have about 25 liters of plasma on a thousand pound horse, the calculated dose would actually only be a little over 2,000 units of regular heparin. Uh, now that is with a low virus load. Uh, you might want to use more in clinical practice, particularly since. The uh, and it doesn't affect, uh, probably, of course, lower high, higher levels would affect a factor-10 uh, uh, activity. Now, they found similar results with the low molecular heparin, although the low molecular heparin, they had to give a higher dose in order to have that same anti-platelet effect. The higher dose would affect coagulation. So, the final comment is that uh, both of these uh, drugs, could work in inhibiting platelet activation and preventing thrombosis in horses. It's blinking red, so I'll need to go. But it's already been tried once, and it wasn't a controlled study because they waited halfway through the outbreak before they started giving the heparin. But an outbreak of EHB1 myelitis uh, that occurred in Germany, uh, halfway through the study, they decided, let's give heparin. So they gave heparin to the horses, Uh, halfway through the outbreak. As it turns out, they only had one of 31 horses that developed the neurologic form once they started heparin. And it's biased because, once again, they had been through half the outbreak, a large outbreak, before they started therapy. So I think that, you know, based on this information, that this would be a very reasonable treatment, particularly since that dose of heparin is safe enough using horses with EHB one infection to try to prevent the thrombosis from occurring. So I'll stop